You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tonight, we're going to build on our previous podcasts about how climate change will affect national security law practice and national security generally. Now, we've spoken to the oil and gas folks previously, as you know, and we've talked about markets. We've moved into minerals because, of course, everybody is moving toward electric charge vehicles. We have advanced weapon systems, which depend on batteries, and you're going to see a lot more battery use. And part of that is that batteries require minerals. This continues our podcast series in which we're going to talk a little bit about what are the environmental implications of mining batteries. But at this point, what we're going to do is focus, as we have previously, on a part of the Pacific known as the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. And for those of you who haven't tuned in previously, it's located 1,000 miles south of Hawaii, 1,000 miles west of San Diego. It's not terribly far from Tonga, but on the other side from the recent volcanic activity, it's also not that far from Nauru and Kiribati, small islands with which most people are unfamiliar. So it's always best to start with the law as we go through these different perspectives. And while we couldn't start with the law, we're going to go ahead and give you a primer tonight. So to get us started, we're joined by Greg O'Brien and Kate Gorov of the U.S. Department of State, obviously an agency that has a lot of equities here. Greg is the Senior Oceans Policy Advisor for the Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. That's an awesome title, by the way. Um, He also has served as a Navy JAG officer in the first part of his career, which I think also gives him extra bona fides. Kate is an attorney with the Office of Legal Advisor for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, who advises Greg's office on a number of oceans and maritime law issues. And they coordinate and lead the United States participation in meetings of the International Seabed Authority, which we'll refer to throughout this podcast as the ISA. And as you know, the ISA, under the Law of the Sea Convention, is developing the international regulations framework for seabed mining in the CCZ and other seabed areas. So welcome, Greg and Kate. We're thrilled to have you with us. Thanks very much, Elise. We're delighted to be with you. Thanks. All right. So, Greg, can you first tell us just a bit about the CCZ and what are the United States' strategic interests in that particular stretch of the Pacific? So the Clarion-Clipperton zone is a wide seabed plain, about as wide as the continental United States. So from east to west, about the distance uh, from California to New York. And then from north to south, it's about half of the size of the continental United States. So say about from Minnesota to Oklahoma. This plain is covered with grapefruit-sized polymetallic nodules that are rich in minerals needed for electric vehicle batteries and uh, other applications. Scientists estimate that these nodules contain more than three times the amount of cobalt found in all of the world's land-based deposits, and also significant amounts of nickel, manganese, and rare earth elements. From a strategic perspective, for many decades, the United States has sought a stable an internationally recognized framework for mining in seabed areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction, 
and one that ensures effective protection for the marine environment from harmful effects that may arise from such mining activities. In terms of vulnerabilities to the critical mineral supply chains of the United States and our partners, these nodules are a potential resource to meet those critical mineral supply needs. And in this regard, the People's Republic of China is actively pursuing its critical mineral interests in the clarion Clipperton zone and other seabed areas regulated by the ISA. So let's talk about what laws and treaties would govern the international seabed and the seabed in the clarion Clipperton zone in particular. Thank you. Internationally, the relevant treaty is the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention, which the U.S. has not joined. The convention in its part 11, together with the 1994 implementation agreement relating to that part, sets forth the international legal framework for activities related to deep seabed mining in the areas beyond national jurisdiction, what's referred to as the area. So the Clarion Clipperton zone is in the area. The convention provides that all mineral exploration and exploitation activities must be sponsored by a state party to the convention. And again, we're, we are not a party to the convention. And all of those activities must be approved by the International Seabed Authority, a body established by the convention, which Greg will explain in more detail later. The convention has provisions pertaining to protection of the marine environment and human life and provides for oversight by the International Seabed Authority of the activities in the area. Another body created by the convention is also relevant, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. The tribunal's seabed dispute chamber can be requested by the International Seabed Authority to provide advisory opinions. So for example, the requirements placed upon states that sponsor mining companies under the Law of the Sea Convention were further explained through an advisory opinion of the tribunal's chamber. Domestically, and something a lot of people are not aware of, the U.S. has legislation from the 1980s establishing a domestic licensing regime. It's called the Deep Seabed Hard Mineral Resources Act. And one of the express purposes of this act was to establish an interim program for NOAA to regulate the exploration and exploitation of hard mineral resources of the deep seabed by the United States persons pending are becoming a party to the Law of the Sea Convention. And again, we're not a party. We've never become a party. One company, Lockheed Martin, continues to hold two exploration licenses, which have been periodically extended under U.S. law. These licenses give it the exclusive right under U.S. law to explore for polymetallic nodules in a specific area. But because we've not become a party to the convention, any rights a U.S. company like Lockheed may have pursuant to this law are not secured internationally. They're just secured vis-a-vis -vis other U.S. persons. The extension of these licenses maintains the proprietary interest conferred by those two licenses, but they do not actually authorize the conduct of at-sea exploration activities. Thank you for that, Kate. I, I would note for our listeners that I believe the metals company whose representative spoke to us last time may have mentioned that they're also a Canadian company. I believe Canada is a signator to that treaty and a member of the Law of the Sea Convention. Just to clear that up, moving along, let's talk a little bit about the International Seabed Authority and 
whether we're members, and if not, why not? So Kate mentioned that the ISA is established by the uh, convention. Membership in in the authority is limited to parties uh, to the convention. So the United States as a non-party, we cannot be a member of the ISA and can only participate in meetings as an observer. This means that we can speak and we can work with members to shape the direction of the ISA's work, but we cannot take part in decision-making or voting. As a non-party observer, the United States is not able to sponsor U.S. companies that may seek exploration or mining contracts with the ISA. Since the convention requires contractors to be under the effective control of a sponsoring ISA member state, this also means that U.S. companies under effective U.S. control are not eligible to be considered by the ISA for contracts. All plans for exploration and exploitation in the deep seabed area, including the Clarion-Clipperton zone, must be approved by the ISA. Currently, parties to the convention sponsor entities that hold 31 contracts for exploration. 19 of those contracts for exploration are in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. Organs of the ISA commenced development of exploitation regulations in 2013 Those regulations are still being developed and discussed. The Pacific Island state of Nauru, as the sponsoring state of a company, notified the ISA this past July of its intention to submit a mining plan for approval. In this regard, the convention provides for the mining regulations to be completed or provisionally approved within two years of such a notification. So by July of 2023, in this uh, situation, I should highlight that Nauru's notice only indicates its intention to submit a plan of work for exploration or for approval for mining activities by 2023, and not that mining will begin at that time. Even though the United States is only an observer at the ISA, we will continue to push for regulations that provide effective protection for the marine environment from harmful effects that may arise from mining activities in the area. Greg, thanks for that. That was a nice recitation of our relationship. Thinking about this from a different perspective, it does sound as if U.S. companies may be disadvantaged because we're not a party to this treaty. Why aren't we a party, Kate? Well, as in many situations these days, for the U.S. to join the convention and become a member of the authority that Greg just described, we would need the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate, which, uh, as you know, is sometimes difficult for treaties uh, these days. The convention and the 1994 implementing agreement were transmitted to the Senate back in 1994, and there have been significant but unsuccessful executive branch efforts to secure Senate approval in 2004, 2007, 2011, and 12. And while the Senate Foreign Relations Committee voted in support of joining the convention in 2004 and 2007, a vote in the full Senate has uh, never taken place because the votes weren't there. The reasons expressed by senators who don't favor joining the convention really fall into three areas. First, the dispute settlement provisions in the convention. Second, the payment of royalties for exploiting the natural resources of the continental shelf beyond 200 nautical miles, in other words, in the area. And third, the deep seabed mining provisions. 
Okay, those seem like certainly issues for discussion, at least. But what is the position of the current administration on becoming a party to the law of the sea convention? So this administration, like past administrations, uh, both Republican and Democrat, supports the United States joining the Law of the Sea Convention because joining would enable the United States to fully protect its navigational rights and freedoms, access to critical minerals, and other ocean-related interests. Accession is also a matter of geostrategic advantage, including in the Arctic and the South China Sea. For decades, the United States has affirmed that the Convention's provisions concerning traditional uses of the ocean generally reflect customary international law that is binding on all states, including the United States. This administration will continue to vigorously defend U.S. interests, which in its view are best served by widespread adherence to the international law of the sea that's reflected in the Convention. Now, we've talked a little bit about these contracts, Greg. What nations do have contracts to explore in the CCZ? So we've already mentioned People's Republic of China and Nauru. Other sponsoring states uh, predominantly are industrialized states, including uh, the United Kingdom, Russia, both individually and in a consortium with former Soviet bloc states, and also Germany, France, Belgium, Japan, and Korea. At the same time, other states uh, are sponsoring entities as well, including Singapore, Jamaica, and the Cook Islands. Right now, these contracts are only for exploration, but when those states are prepared and the exploitation regulations are finalized and in place, those states can then apply for contracts to mine in those areas. And coming back to the uh, earlier points about the PRC's active pursuit of critical minerals, in the clarion Clipperton zone, the People's Republic of China holds three exploration blocks, along with two blocks in other zones regulated by the ISA. And this is more than any other member state at the ISA. In the Clarion-Clipperton zone, this amounts to about 87,000 square miles of deep seabed area where China will have exclusive mining rights. Okay, that's, I think, to some of our listeners in national security would find that, I think, alarming. But let's talk about something else that exists on the seabed, something that we have, but that Russia, I would note, has none of, and that is submarine cables. Noting how most of the world's communications and financial transactions occur internationally through submarine cables, how are cables protected from the risk of being cut or damaged from mining activity or otherwise interfered with as part of some sort of ruse mining activity when it really could be nothing more than an intelligence operation. Sure. And uh, certainly uh, exposure of submarine cables to uh, other risks and hazards like the unfortunate events uh, offshore of Tonga really reveal the dependence that all of us have on uh, submarine cables. So the convention requires that activities in the area be carried out with what's described as reasonable regard for other activities in the marine environment. The ISA has conducted a number of analyses over the years and organized workshops on how to protect submarine cables. And the United States has worked closely with the International Cable Protection Committee, which is also an observer group at the ISA, along with member states to ensure that draft mining regulations as they develop 
include appropriate protections for submarine cables. Other activities in the marine environment, such as fishing, are also included in this category. Reasonable regard in the convention is a flexible standard. So it's important that the regulations enable a range of approaches to reaching practical solutions in particular instances. All right, let's also talk about something that we've discussed in other casts on the same topic, which is the concept of exclusive economic zones or EEZs. This is, I think, coming into sharp focus after the subsea volcanic eruption on the other side of, of Tonga. And has climate change already, or how will climate change shrink these zones for island nations such as Nauru and Tonga? Well, as you've probably discussed in previous podcasts, the EEZ is an area extending up to 200 nautical miles from a state's coastal baseline. And in that area, the state has certain rights and jurisdiction related to the natural resources of the waters and the deep seabed. This includes rights related to both living and non-living resources. For example, the fish in the EEZ's water column, hydrocarbon or mineral resources in the seabed of the EEZ. So as your question notes, one of the big legal challenges presented by climate change for all coastal nations, but especially for these island nations, is that under existing international law, coastal baselines are generally ambulatory, meaning that at the low water line along these coasts shift, such shifts can have corresponding impacts on the outer limits of the coastal state's maritime zone, such as the EZ. Now, with these recent events, of course, you know, we need to say that the U.S. recognizes that rising sea levels are a very real threat, and we're committed to working with others to promote our common goal of protecting maritime zones from challenge and doing so in a manner that we can all support as consistent with international law. All right. What else do we need to know about the treaties and agreements that will have an impact on seabed mining? Well, the law of the Sea Convention framework was designed to preserve the area and its resources as the common heritage of mankind. And a key component of this common heritage of mankind principle is that activities should be carried out for the benefit of mankind as a whole. This means providing for the equitable sharing of financial and economic benefits derived from activities in the area. So needless to say, members of the ISA have very different views on what these provisions mean and how they can be implemented. You know, how the, what percentage, when, and there's all sorts of various proposals that have been put forward, giving different options for states to um, decide upon, but that's an ongoing discussion. In addition, the convention creates an entity to serve as the commercial arm of the ISA that could also carry out mining activities in the area when such activities become commercially viable. Because of the notice put forward by Nauru that Greg mentioned earlier, that it intends to submit a plan of work to commence mining in 2023, discussions have begun on whether it's time to appoint an interim director general to begin working on some of the functions of a future entity, commercial entity, or if that's still premature at this time. Yes, and I think, in candor, some of our guests will suggest that there's no way that this will become profitable in the near future. I think that's a subject for debate, and I welcome any sort of pushback from either one of you on that score. But I want to thank you both for coming in tonight. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. 
We will hyperlink to the website for the International Seabed Authority and the treaties that you have all mentioned this evening. Before I let you go, one of the things a podcast does is it reaches a lot of young listeners at the beginning of their career and making decisions. So if I could ask you both, because I think state is one of the wonderful, strong government agencies really admired throughout the world. What advice would two lawyers such as yourselves give to young people who might be interested in pursuing a career based on the law of the sea? Lisa, I want to say first, thank you very much for having us. It's been very nice and quite interesting to uh, have a chance to talk with you, to exchange views. It's also exciting to have a chance to speak to young attorneys and late in the game uh, students, perhaps just starting out. So really, my advice for what it may be worth is... You know, you have your long-term goals. Uh, stay open that the path to get to those goals may meander in ways that you just don't anticipate, and they may provide stops that present opportunities and challenges that just were never anticipated, but still provide a whole lot of opportunity. I served with the Navy for 20 years, so personally, I have a deep bias towards the sea surfaces. Each tour I had with the Navy was fun, and it provided new challenges and opportunities with good and interesting people, all with diverse backgrounds. That time provided the foundation for my time here at State and the opportunities it presented to learn, to advise, to teach international law, including the law of armed conflict and the law of the sea, to a wide range of persons, including commander of an aircraft carrier battle group staff, commanding officers of ships and squadrons, at State, Kate and I work pretty closely with the, the Coast Guard, and on a daily basis, we've observed that the Coast Guard applies the law of the sea in all of the missions that they conduct, whether they be counter-narcotics operations, search and rescue, marine pollution response, and enforcement of rules for merchant shipping that the International Maritime Organization develops. And just a plug for the Coast Guard as well, some preeminent law of the sea scholars, such as Bernie Oxman at the University of Miami, started his career with the Navy in the Judge Advocate General's Corps. And Craig Allen at the University of Washington served a full career in the Coast Guard before retiring uh, to his scholarly pursuits. I'll turn it over to Kate. You know, so many different issues are impacted by the law of the sea. As Greg noted in state legal where I am, as well as in his office, there are multiple positions where the law of the sea is fairly relevant. Of course, at NOAA, much of their work deals with various aspects covered by the Convention on the Law of the Sea, protection of underwater cultural heritage, regional seas, fisheries agreements and fisheries. And a number of law firms are representing countries with maritime boundary disputes. Uh, before international tribunals. If you look at the list of D.C. and New York law firms, many of them have been engaged in those disputes. And of course, you know, you have the lawyers who are representing the companies who are interested in mining and fishing operations. And finally, I don't want to forget all the issues where jurisdictional rights and limits of states are reflected in the convention. In fact, I deal with Department of Justice all the time on jurisdictional limits to our exercise of criminal jurisdiction, which at its basis is you know, provided for in the Law of the Sea Convention. And we're trying to figure out what the limits are that will be upheld in U.S. courts. And then you have the prosecution and defense attorneys who are also arguing various sides of the convention's limits 
before the U.S. court. So it really does affect a lot of uh, areas which you wouldn't even necessarily think about at first glance. And thank you so much for having uh, Greg and I here today. Well, we're thrilled you could make it. And uh, for our listeners, our guests today have been Greg O'Brien from the United States Department of State's Bureau of Oceans and International Environment and Scientific Affairs, and Kate Goroff from the United States Department of State's Legal Advisor's Office, which handles all those issues. So thank you, Greg and Kate. And we hope that we can have you back someday in the future as we develop this topic further. So, and for our listeners, join us for the next installment on the national security implications of minerals mining from the seabed and how mining the seabed will have an impact for sure on national security. So we'll see you next Thursday when our new episodes drop. In the meantime, thanks for listening. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep bringing your national security law and issues every week. So hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. And remember, we don't take your attention for granted ever. If you have topics you want us to cover or feedback you'd like to give us, find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And don't forget, anybody hosting this podcast, meaning tonight just be solo, is here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. 